Welcome to episode 122 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, is it possible to go out into the wilderness with a crusty loaf and a canteen of water and then derive everything else you need from the land? We'll share our experiences with foraging. Then on today's top five list, we'll share the top five things that I do on every single backpacking trip. Next, we're skipping the Summit Gear Review and having a little story time instead. Then, today's backpack hack of the week is a little bit creepy, but super useful. All this, and that's about it, today on the first 40 miles. Foraging is such a romantic notion. Foraging means that you find things on the trail to eat. In fact, our trail wisdom from episode 96 was from David Cooper, and he said, I feel so independent now. I can get anywhere I want to. I have the few essentials I need, and the few other things I need or want I can derive from the land. Doesn't that sound so perfect and blissful. Like you just go out with a few things and then you're out picking fresh berries and you have this wild greens salad and maybe you catch a fish and you have this perfect little foraged meal and you're just so proud of yourself and you're like, wow, I derived all of this from the land. And in the places where the two of us and our family go backpacking, we are surrounded by green. And so you think, well, when I go to the grocery store, I see green in the produce section. And so if I can just figure out which of all that green stuff in the forest is edible, there's so much of it that I can't possibly go hungry out there. I just need to know what it is that's edible. Right. In fact, we were so inspired by this idea that a few years ago, Josh, I bought you a couple foraging books for Christmas because I knew you were interested in it. Yeah, I love this book you got me. This one book is really brightly colored, lots of green. It's called The Joy of Foraging. And I'm just excited by the idea that I could go out into the wilderness and that if I just knew more than I know now, that I could identify all those plants out there and I would know which ones are edible. And, you know, just because they don't show up in the grocery store doesn't mean they're not edible. We, we tend to restrict ourselves to everything we see in the grocery store. And we say, okay, well, you know, stuff that's been bred to be large and bushy in the form of broccoli or carrots or lettuce or spinach or kale, all of that is edible. And then everything that grows wild is not edible. But of course, at some time in the past, all of that stuff in the grocery store, you know, it descended from some wild plant. You know, I had this thought that, well, if I just knew more about the wild plants out there and I could identify them, surely I could get all the nutrition that I need from the wild just as well as I could in the grocery store. Right. And I mean, 
I guess we can blame Hollywood partially for this. I remember there was a scene in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers where Adam and Millie are headed up the hill in their wagon and they stop for a little bit and she goes out into this random forest along the way and starts picking sorrel because she says it makes real nourishing soup. And, you know, that's probably going to provide maybe six calories. And she probably expended a lot more effort to actually get that sorrel. Yeah. So if we start getting into the challenges of foraging, there's number one. All those groceries that we buy in the produce section of the grocery store give us lots of nutrition in terms of vitamins and minerals, but they don't give us lots of calories. We go to other sections of the grocery store to get the calories. Well, I mean, there's some root vegetables, right? Like potatoes. But otherwise, we're probably going to a different aisle of the grocery store to get like all the rice that's been harvested and cultivated. Yeah. Right. This long, extensive process to kind of concentrate it down to just grains of rice that we can eat or pasta. Well, that came from wheat, but there was a lot of effort involved in harvesting those little seeds off of the wheat plants and concentrating them and getting them ground up into flour and making pasta or the meat section. Lots of calories there. Okay, now stop, because meat is something you can get in a forest. Fish, they're all over the place. Like if you backpack near a lake, you could totally get fish and that would completely supply your calorie needs. That's what bears do. That's how they get so big. <laughs> well, they do. And and they get big off of fish and also berries. And yeah, they're foragers. Yeah, there's something that they know that we don't. Because yeah, they definitely get plenty of food. Enough to last through most of the winter without needing to get up and eat more. Which means we should be able to do it too, right? I mean, aren't we smarter than the average bear? No, I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> I struggle sometimes. Maybe we don't have the same digestive system that a bear has. It just seems like there's a lot more effort involved for us to do foraging than for a bear to do it. Take the classic, dandelions. They're everywhere, and we all know they're edible. Why don't we eat them? Well, they taste terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, plus, if you live in the city, then you're all worried about whether they've been sprayed with uh, pesticides, you know, so you can't pick them out of someone's lawn because maybe they've sprayed weed killer on the lawn. You can't really pick them off of a crack in the sidewalk because maybe it's polluted from vehicles driving by. But let's say you're out in the wilderness and you find dandelions. Well, there's this call out in my Joy of Foraging book about dandelions, and it says this, if there's one well-known plant that's the touchstone for bitterness, it's dandelion. Dandelion is a bitter green even when it's young, and it only gets more so once the plant flowers. So if you're not looking for a bitter green and you toss dandelion greens into your salad or even cook it, you're not likely to repeat the meal and will probably tell anyone willing to listen how bitter it is. So that doesn't exactly make me excited <laughs> to go forage for dandelions, even if I'm out in the wilderness where I'm not worried about pollution. Okay, then what about watercress? Because that's something that we've tried recently. We picked up a little tiny bunch for a few dollars at a farmer's market that we went to. And the lady standing next to us was like, I picked that stuff down by the creek behind my house for free. So I know that there's stuff growing. It doesn't taste awful because the watercress was pretty good. 
Well, let's look up watercress. Well, now there, I think you have something. Now, what they say about watercress and the joy of foraging is that watercress is a joy to behold as well as one of the tastiest salad greens. Wow, I think we hit something there. So that's what we've got to find. They'll, they'll be growing in really wet areas like uh, creek beds in the spring. That sounds like something worth trying to find. I think so. Yeah. The other tough one that I run into is acorns. We live in a part of Oregon where we have a lot of Oregon white oak trees around us. And in the fall, all these acorns drop to the ground. And if you're quick, you can get out and collect them. And then just a few days later, the squirrels have come by and cleaned up the whole place. But then if you look at the preparation method for acorns, well, here's what the book says. Let them dry out for a few days until the nut meat separates easily from the shell. Then crack the shells and boil the nut meat, changing the water every half hour or as the water turns a rusty red. Then roast the acorns and grind them, and you're going to come up with two outputs. One is a fine flour, and the other is a coarse pebble-like product. So you can use the flour to make things like muffins, and that coarse pebble-like product to make things like fake hamburger patties. <laughs> Yum! <laughs> So I love the idea of getting some food out of all these acorns that drop on the ground around us. But the preparation is so intensive that I would never be able to do it on a backpacking trip. You know, despite all of the challenges that come with foraging, we have had some memorable successes. And one of those was when we went foraging with Josh's brother, Ben, and we were able to find some lamb's ear and we harvested some and brought it home and cooked it. And it probably supplied us with a good 12 calories. That's about it. Yeah, but there was something really cool about it. And I think this is one of the things that I love about foraging. Just the fact that you found something that nobody else thought was valuable, that no grocer thought was even worth putting in the grocery store, or that maybe had a shelf life that was so short they couldn't stock it in a grocery store. And you picked it, and you did something with it, and it provided some value to you. To me, that's really exciting. And that's the kind of stuff I want to find, the stuff that it's not in the grocery store, not because it's bitter or hard to prepare, but because it's so perishable, but it's actually really good. And if you can find that and just pick it fresh and eat it immediately, that's what I'm going for. I'm not there yet. But that's what I want. Yeah, and I'm wondering if maybe our foraging will have to take place a little bit off the beaten path. Because another success that we've had is with Northwest berries. We'll find huckleberries, blackberries, um, these little salmon berries. And they're all over the forest in August. But on the main part of the trail, they're pretty well picked over. So that might require taking a spur or two and kind of looking and seeing if you can find any untapped berry bushes. Another success has been chives or wild garlic. We've uh, found those just out and about on our hikes and even mentioned them in our book, uh, Trail Fuel, because really, if you could garnish a little risotto with chives, that's great. And you can usually tell when you're in chive country, you start smelling that garlicky smell and you look down and you see this fresh little grass underneath you and that's chives. You mentioned fish a few minutes ago. I didn't really mean fish. <laughs> I don't know if I could survive off of fish. I, I enjoy fish, but I don't have the skills. Like I can probably forage things that don't move, 
But the moving stuff, I don't know about that. Yeah, we... <laughs> we don't have the gift for fishing. Some people do. Josh's dad, he's an incredible fisherman. Josh and I have not figured it out yet. Yep. Another thing that we really would love to figure out is mushrooms. On our trip to Three Mile Lake and the Oregon coast last summer, we came across this couple that had a little bag full of these gorgeous red mushrooms. In fact, they told us all about them and said, hey, yeah, you can go go pick some. They're safe. And I wasn't really in an experimental mood that weekend. <laughs> And so uh, we found out they're called lobster mushrooms. And after we got home, we did a little bit of research and found out that it's not the actual mushroom that's red, but it's actually this mold that's attacking the mushroom that's red. So it's a very distinct color and very distinct shape, and it probably would have been completely safe. I just would rather have someone holding my hand when I do mushroom hunting. Me too. Before we wrap up our conversation about foraging, just a quick note on rules. Foraging is generally allowed in most places for on-site consumption. So if you're going to pick some berries and eat them right there on your trip or harvest some watercress and eat it right there on your trip, that's generally allowed. Uh, harvesting and then taking stuff home, you'd have to check on that. It's going to depend on the place. And in some places, even where uh, that on-site consumption is allowed, you still may need a permit. And the permit may be free, but you still need to check. So figure out the land ownership of where you'll be, and then you can look up the rules for that area and figure out, you know, can I forage and just consume what I pick uh, while I'm on my trip? Or do I need a permit? And if so, do I need to pay for the permit? And are there any limits on how much I can take? And also make sure when you're picking a plant that it's not the very last plant of that kind in the forest. So make sure that it's a well-established collection of plants and then you can take just what you need. I really would love to hear people's experience with foraging. I know if we went backpacking in the tropics that we would have great stories about bananas and coconuts. It would just be so great. We actually probably could live off of what's in the forest in a tropical climate, but it's a little bit more um, veiled, I guess I'll say, in a forest that we're not going to see stalks of celery springing up or an apple tree right in the middle of the forest with fresh apples on it. You're going you're gonna to have to do some hunting and maybe get a little bit creative and do some research. Find things that are edible and that are well established that you can experiment with in your backpacking diet. So we'd love to hear about your experiences with foraging. Uh, let us know what you found and the region where you found it. Unless you want to keep it on the down low, you know, you don't want to let us know your secret chive spot. But we'd love to hear about your experiences with foraging while backpacking. And you can share your experiences on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the first 40 miles or Twitter, twitter.com slash the first 40 miles. For today's top five list, we'll be talking about the top five things that I do on every single backpacking trip. And in a few weeks, we'll give Josh an opportunity to share his top five list of what he does on every single backpacking trip. We've been on enough trips now that I've started to notice patterns in myself. 
And so looking back, I was able to pull out what those things were. And it's kind of fun to look back and see little, I don't know, rituals that you develop over time or habits. And I think it says a lot about the kind of hiker or backpacker that you are. And I can guess number one for you. It involves paper and a pencil. Yes. Preferably waterproof paper. (laughs) It's note-taking. Yes. I mean, you could be walking down the trail and an idea comes to your mind and out comes the little notebook and you write it down. Yes. I love to take notes. So usually I bring a pencil and write in the rain paper with me. I take notes about everything from food that I want to bring next time, you know, what worked and what didn't. I'll write down my own personal thoughts. Sometimes I'll take notes about the first 40 miles hacks that I want to include in a future episode, some ideas that I have for topics, Um, and some of my notes aren't even related to backpacking. Sometimes I write down ideas for lyrics that I want to use in future songs. So backpacking just gives you so much time to think, and since not all of my thoughts fit in my head, I just take notes as I go. The second thing that I do on every single trip is I make sure to get alone time. You know, it's funny when our kids were younger and completely dependent on Josh and I, alone time was all I wanted. But now that they're a little bit older and way more self-reliant, it's not really a huge need like it was when they were so small. But still, the trail is a great place to get alone time. And it's still, it's still important to me. So a good way to get alone time on the trail is to hike between the packs, kind of like they taught you in driver's ed. You know, you don't want to be clumped with the people in the front or the people in the back. You want to be kind of in between. So there's that buffer. And that'll give you some nice, quiet alone time. Another great way to get alone time is to go into your tent. So if you just need to decompress... The tent is a great place to go. The number three thing that I do on every single trip is I get over it. This is something I really had to kind of learn maybe more recently than in the past, but you have two choices in life that you can pout and miss out or you can just get over it. There's always going to be something unexpected or unpleasant on a backpacking trip, whether it's something that you caused or something that someone else did that's really getting on your nerves. But just learning to be more flexible and getting over it is something that I do on every single trip because I have to. And I have to give credit to my daughter for helping me to learn this principle because when she was taking a typing class a few years ago, she had this phrase that she had to type over and over and over again so much that it kind of became this family joke. But the phrase was, Gary got mad and had to go home and get over it. (laughs) So, I mean, even Gary, Gary had to get over it. And you can too. I can too. (laughs) I've got to admit, when it was a week before that 40-mile trip around Mount Hood and you got invited to go and you had one week to prepare, my concern about you going was that you would be exposed to uncomfortable situations and that that would end up being a bad experience for you. 
I wasn't particularly worried about your your health, your strength, you know, the like the physical ability to do the hike. I was worried about those times when it was going to be cold or rainy or it was going to be a long trudge up some switchbacks or we were going to have to cross Elliott Wash by scrambling down a scree slope while hanging onto ropes. We were going to have to jump across these raging glacial runoff rivers. It was that stuff that I, I just wasn't sure how you were going to do with it. So I've got to say, I was totally wrong. You were amazing on that trip. When you experienced those various discomforts, you, you got over it. And I saw this side of you that just was really cool to see. And maybe part of that wasn't even me, but it was this idea of trusting the trail. And it's an idea I'd never even thought of until um, you and I listened to a podcast recently called Trust the Trail. And I just thought, oh, maybe, maybe there's real power in the trail that you can pull from when you're experiencing these challenges. So it helps us to be more than we thought we could be, or more than our husband thought we could be. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know what you meant. I know what you meant. <laughs> That's, that's really what I thought. I had a track record of whining. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's right. You have told me uh, <laughs> that I, I guess when you were growing up, among your family, you were pretty famous for whining. Yeah. I'm over it. Just like Gary. Gary got mad and had to go home and get over it. I'm over it. That's great. <laughs> the number four thing that I do on every single trip is I consistently underestimate how long a mile is. Me too. I don't know why it's so hard to estimate distances. Actually, I don't know how long a mile is. What, 3,570 feet? Close. close? 5,280. <sighs> so close. Maybe that's why. Maybe you should go with kilometers. A thousand feet. A thousand meters. Me <laughs> a thousand <laughs> well, okay. Oh, no. A thousand meters. <laughs> Oh, and you know, even though I underestimate how long a mile is, does it really matter? Maybe I could just estimate distance by time. You know, an hour is probably about a mile and a half or so, two miles. So if you give yourself enough of a buffer in your day, then it doesn't matter. Yeah, I guess not. But, but it's funny just how how much we underestimate that distance. So you're hiking along and you think, hmm, I bet we've gone about a mile so far. Right. And then you look at the map and you're like, oh, uh, we've gone about a half mile, maybe. <laughs> um, that's maybe being a little generous. Right. It happens a lot. And the number five thing that I do on every single trip is I say, wow. And that wow is just it's always accompanied by a feeling. It's that immense gratitude to my family for coming out on the trail, the feeling of gratitude toward God. And it's just so incredible that we get to go outside and that it's so much more different and fulfilling and challenging and enriching from being inside. In fact, today's trail wisdom is a really great reminder of what being outside does for us as individuals. So I'm excited to share that at the end of the show. So those are the top five things that I do on every single trip. I probably have lots of other little, you know, 
quirks and habits and things that just kind of work their way into every trip. But I'm really excited to hear Josh's top five things that he does on every single trip. And we will be sharing that in an upcoming episode. And if any of you guys want to share the things that you do on every single trip, we would love to hear what you have to say. I had the opportunity recently to meet Tom Hennessy of Hennessy Hammocks. He's the brains behind all of those incredible innovations on hammocks. And he's been hammocking forever and has some really great stories to share. He is just a character, but he's not like a flamboyant kind of guy. He's kind of like a quiet guy. I don't know. Maybe he's crazy on the trail, but in real life, when you're face-to-face talking with him, he's a pretty laid-back um, laid back kind of guy. So I got a couple stories from him that I thought were worth sharing on the first 40 miles today. And I can guarantee these are the kind of stories that only happen when you have spent decades and decades on the trail. You'll hear some background noise in these recordings because Heather sat down with Tom at the Outdoor Retailer Show last summer, so there was a lot going on. But his voice comes through loud and clear. You'll have no problem hearing his stories. Okay, hi, I'm Tom Hennessy, and my last backpacking trip was out to Maori Beach in uh, Stewart Island in New Zealand. And uh, it was a nice, fantastic walk along the coast, lots of wonderful views. And I got out to the beach, and I set up beside a little creek that comes down uh, to the beach. And it's like a little sandbar goes up the creek, and I was all perfectly set up. About uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, I felt this pull on the side elastic of the hammock. I woke up instantly, and then I heard this flop, flop, flop. And basically what had happened is... a a brown kiwi had tripped over the elastic on the rain on the hammock side and I heard it get back up and I yelled because I didn't know quite what it was wasn't quite sure after he tripped he got up he looked around he saw this thing hovering in the air beside him and he gave me a strong whack in the hip with his beak so I'm the only person that I know of that's ever been attacked by a kiwi the second story is about a hamnado, which is a hammock plus a tornado. Sounds fun. Sounds like it could be a Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah. Hamnado? <laughs> Who wouldn't love that movie? Uh, my early days, I was out uh, sailing on Lake Michigan with some friends, and we had to get off the lake because the clouds were forming tornado holes in the clouds. So we went back to the campground, and my buddies were across the road in an umbrella tent, four of them. And I was on the other side of the road in my hammock, tied up between some trees. A tornado came down the road very silently. We didn't hear it. When it hit my, hit my hammock, it basically, instead of curving down, now it curved up. And I was floating around in the hammock weightlessly like I was in space for about 15 or 20 seconds, really kind of enjoying it. I wasn't too scared. And when the, when the wind passed, settled down, I climbed out of the hammock, looked across the road where my friend's umbrella tent was, and it was gone. And four, four of them got picked up, and I saw them about 100 meters off to the left where the road turned. It set them down there, and then the tornado continued off through the woods, and it was just looked like broken matchsticks as far as you could see. For today's Backpack Hack of the Week, Snakebite 911. This is a great app to download right before you leave on the trail. It'll give you information about the snakes in your area, You'll be able to see where people have recently sighted snakes in your area. Also, if you do happen to get bitten by a snake, you can track the envenomation process. 
means you've been envenomated. <laughs> but you'll be able to take pictures. And it actually has a venom tracker reminder in this app if you've been bitten. And it'll remind you every 15 minutes to take a photo of the bitten area so that when you get to the hospital, you'll be able to show them how it's progressed. It also has a hospital locator. So this app is sponsored by Crofab, which is the anti-venom that these hospitals stock. So you'll be able to find a hospital that has the exact medication that you need for the bite that you have. The app also has great information for identifying snakes, uh, really good detailed pictures. We're looking at the picture right now of the Northern Pacific rattlesnake. And on that page, you see a map showing its habitat. Its habitat includes the states of Washington, Oregon, and California. And then a really detailed photo where you can see the scales of the skin and even the color, that purplish color of the tongue of the snake. Yeah, it's super creepy, but really helpful at the same time. Yes. <laughs> and the Snakebite 911 app comes in three editions or, or three versions, I guess. Uh, one is Snakebite 911, which is for the public. Then there's Snakebite 911 FR, which is for first responders to use, and Snakebite 911 ER for emergency room use. So if you go to uh, the App Store or Google Play and search for Snakebite 911, all one word, no space, you'll find three search results that they'll all say Snakebite 911. And then for me, when I turned my phone sideways, it left a little more space for those titles to show up. And I could see that one of the apps was Snakebite 911. The other was Snakebite 911 FR. And the third one was Snakebite 911 ER. They all had the same app icon. So it took me a second to figure out which one was right for me. And this is a great app to have on your phone, even if you don't get bitten by a snake, because if you do see a snake, you can add your snake sighting to the app. And so other people will know that there's a snake in the area. There's probably lots of snakes in the area that you don't even see, but you get an idea of the concentration in certain areas, especially where hikers are. And if you are going to be in an area that has more than its fair share of snakes, on this app, they have a list of general safety tips, so it'll decrease your chances of having a run-in with a venomous snake. And we'll include links to the Snakebite 911 app in today's show notes at thefirst40miles.com slash 122. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, David Burwell. He said, Trails not only connect us with each other, they connect us with ourselves. Communities with no place to daydream are communities without imagination. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you've been on a backpacking trip, share your story at thefirst40miles.com story. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles. Skunk cabbage. Oh, you can eat skunk cabbage? What to look for? Early spring before the leaves unfurl. Because once they unfurl, baby. Wow. Yeah. <laughs>